You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your regular host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is a regular panelist and our pinch-hitting panelist. First, we have freelance writer Tom Chick. Can I get anyone a coffee? I would be more than happy to oblige. If anyone would like a coffee, let me know. And our, uh, I guess, sixth man off the bench, uh, back due to popular demand, uh, Mr. Rob Zachney. Rob, glad you could join us again. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, this week on TAP, we're going to talk about uh, Paradox's most recent expansion to Europa Universalis III, Heir to the Throne. And most importantly, uh, in a broader sense, what Europa Universalis III uh, and the entire EU series and the Paradox uh, style of design means for variety, what it means for approaching different game styles, and what Heir to the Throne brings to the table. So guys, we've each had a little bit of experience with Heir to the Throne and the EU series. Um, actually, I'd like to start just pretty much back at the beginning. Your first exposure to the European Universalis series, because this, these were games you know, wow. that pretty much came out of nowhere, right? I, I do remember vividly discovering EU, yeah. Uh, how what long are, ago was that? It came out in 2000 in the Americas, so it been in Europe, I think, in 1999. Do you want to, how did you find it, Tom? I remember you reviewing it. I don't, I mean, I, I just try to play, I mean, I love strategy games like you guys, so when a new one comes out, I'm, I'm eager to play it. Uh, how did I find it? I, I have no idea how I found it, but I vividly remember finding it, and I vividly remember, uh, it, it's based on a board game, isn't that correct? Like, yeah. I'm sure it's come a long way since the board game, but I remember really appreciating some of the cool board game mechanics that it incorporated. Uh, and would this have been, I can't believe I have to ask this, but would this have been the first of Paradox's big epic strategy games? It would have been their first big epic strategy game, if, as I remember it. I have to look this up to be sure. They had a couple of local European games, the Sveirika series. Which but was, like, this was way before like Hearts of Iron and Victoria. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is their first. This is where they built their reputation for you know the big epic uh, play-through-history sort of stuff. Um, and I, I guess what I remember most being struck by is, is a, a, how cool it was that they were able to incorporate some really neat board game mechanics in what was really a huge spreadsheet of a game, mm-hmm. and then B, just how much amazing historical flavor it had. Because uh, that's something that, that you guys, and, and certainly if Bruce were here, he would be able to speak to this. You guys have, I think, more patience with blatantly mathematical war game models. Like, I, I get, I my attention span, it, it loses me if I have to look at hexes and, and chits and assume that they're mm-hmm. panzer divisions, and all that stuff loses me. But that was never a factor here. For a game that is so mathy, yep. uh, it really just had so much historical flavor that I, I was hooked. And the math has become even more transparent as the series has moved along. A lot of that stuff was pretty much under the hood uh, for the first iteration, as I recall. They were really pushing, you know, you're touching history, you're really into this. And a lot of the math was hidden, which made some of the relationships a bit complicated, I think. Uh, Well, one of the things, Troy, that I remember also being really impressed by was the way that Paradox approached tooltips and in-game documentation. Namely, that uh, you, you know you, you got a manual, and their manuals have gotten better over the years. Yeah. But you mainly learned the game by putting the mouse over a value or something on the map that you didn't know what it was, 
and you would get the brief tooltip automatically. But if you were if you were really flummoxed, you would leave the mouse there, and an expanded tooltip would pop out with some of the math and a more detailed right. explanation of what exactly it was. And I, I love that approach. Um, that was something I recall they built on uh, over the years. It wasn't initially like that, but they added to it in patches and expansions and as things went along. Now, uh, Rob, you were like three when EU, <laughs> the first Trope Universe House came out. Uh, what was your exposure to the series? Um, well, I mean, it was one of those games that I heard about a long time before I ever played. Um, you know, the rap on it was that it was, um, what, the... Uh, it's civilization with a PhD. That was the that was the line, <laughs> um, and that sounded pretty cool, but a little a little bit forbidding. Um, and, and I think that's a little unfair. It's, it's more like civilization for like the super hardcore history buff, I think. Um, but it was one of those games that I just heard about on forums. Um, you know, people saying that it was this really deep strategy game. Um, but I wouldn't have considered myself a particularly hardcore strategy gamer. Um, you know, until the last couple of years. So it was one of those things that I was a little intimidated by. And uh, the screenshots certainly didn't make me feel any less intimidated. <laughs> um, but I figure once, uh, you know, the third game came out and the uh, complete collection came out, I figured it was time to uh, get my feet wet. So you didn't have any exposure to the earlier parts of the series at all? None. Ah. So Rob is our Johnny-come-lately, uh, who... Uh, like Troy, you and I sort of have seen how far it's come. Yep. Rob, you got the advantage of getting to jump in after so many issues had been ironed out. For instance, here's one that, Rob, you never had to deal with this. A, a huge obstacle in the earlier EU, EUs for me was kind of how aimless and sandboxy it was. Uh, you picked a nation and you played it, and you just played it until the time limit ran out on history. And they had, I think, and they still have this, you could rank the order... Uh, it's based, I think, just on prestige. prestige ranking, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there was nothing really guiding you or telling you what to do. Now, one of the ways they've approached that, and I love this approach, and I think it helps the AI a lot, are with these missions and these national objectives. Uh, they add so much more historical flavor that they can use to push the player in a certain direction. For instance, if you're playing Granada, you know, they help you try to form Spain. Um, and the AI uses that also to, to have the, the map evolve. And I don't think that was an early feature. Like it, no. it seemed a lot more aimless. Uh, so, Rob, you, you have the advantage of when you play, you're being pointed in a specific direction, and it didn't used to do that. Well, hang on. I think you might be overestimating how much that actually helps the uh, newcomer. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of those national missions um, mm -hmm. are damn near uncompletable when you first get them. Well, so, I mean, there's, you, know, there's, you sit down. Sure. Go ahead. I'm sorry. First time you play, and uh, you know you're Brandenburg, and it's telling you to take a province away from Austria. Um, that's probably that's not a particularly helpful mission. Um, the the other thing though is it's it, when I first played, um, I don't know, it was it was terrifyingly sandboxy. I didn't feel like I was given much guidance, uh, but I made the mistake of choosing a um, small Central European, uh, a small German state, um, and there it was. It, there it was very passive, you know, just managing my tiny little kingdom while the game basically played itself around me. Um, in retrospect, that was probably not the best way to start the game. Well, just to elaborate a bit, uh, Rob, in addition to the mission structure, uh, there are the uh, the new, and this is something new in Heir to the Throne, the, the national decisions, uh, and then there are also provincial decisions. But the, some of the national decisions give you farther-looking, sort of like, 
forward-looking objectives in the future. They're not necessarily always your immediate mission, but you can look down the list, and they're specific to what nation you're playing, and see what kind of options are going to unfold in front of you. For instance, like the one with Granada, it says if you control these particular provinces, and you have this government level, and you have an army this much bigger than your nearest neighbor, like it lays out conditions, then you form Spain. So if you're playing Granada or Aragon or or, uh, or Portugal or whatever, you can look down that list and see, okay, here's something I can shoot for. Now, that's in addition to your immediate mission, which you can always turn down, by the way. I like yeah. that feature of Heir to the Throne as well. If you get something well, that's that a, doesn't that's look an, feasible... That, that's an EU3, and that's, that's just Heir to the Throne. You could always turn down a mission. But did, but, but does it, did it always tie into the prestige system the same way? Yeah, where you, you would always... You, you would always lose then, five. You would always lose okay. five prestige uh, for turning down a mission. It's one of the big things in EU three. Right, but since but since Rob didn't see, I was talking right. about oh, yeah. sort of the, the right. overarching thing from EU to EU two to EU three. Right. That's kind of new guidance. Right. So if you get that thing as Brandenburg that says you know conquer an Austrian province and Austria is the HRE and there's no way you're going to get in there, uh, then you can just turn that down and, and get another one which might be something more prosaic like uh, build a navy. Yeah, build a navy up to your force limit. Uh, so, so those are those are things that the, that the series didn't used to have. Like it was totally up to you when and whether to build a navy. I think even things like whether to form the larger historical entities like Spain or France. Well, a lot of those are tied to a lot of the in the earlier games they were tied to historical dates, historical events, historical well, the event system. Yeah, yeah. yeah they weren't there weren't national decisions. You often didn't have a choice uh, to form them. If you did, it was an easy choice. Well, you have all these places now. You get to form it, but unless you got into the files, you wouldn't know that Muscovy had to control the next 12 provinces to form Russia. Right, right. Uh, what EU3 did is it exposed it – ex- it? it exposes the files that are underneath. It says, we know you experts are going to cheat anyway. <laughs> Look in the files and see what you need to do to make Russia. So we're going to make sure everybody knows how to make Russia. Well, it does. It builds it into the gameplay. There are still a few things like that, Troy, like with, for instance, the Reformation. Like, all of that is stuff under the hood. It's event system driven. Uh, But then there there are other things that I think they wisely used to guide the player experience and to make it a little less aimless than it used to be. So my whole point is that, Rob, I think that you're you're lucky to have come into it with EU3 rather than one of the earlier games. Not that the earlier games weren't good. There were some uh, in EU2. Uh, still st- I, c- I can't go back to Europe and Universalis 2, as I wrote uh, during an earlier post uh, about a month ago. Actually, Though I did, over my Christmas holiday, since it ran on my netbook, I did actually play EU2. And just maybe miss EU3 all the more. Uh, it still is one of my favorite games of all time, but uh, the series has come so far. And I think I can say pretty confidently that EU3 is uh, probably Paradox's best game. Would you agree with that? As if, long as we're talking about Heir to the Throne being included, yes. Okay. Not my favorite, but the best. So I want to hear about Rob's game. So Rob, when you first come to it, can you talk a bit about... One of the things that uh, I think led to throwing this out as a subject for a podcast is I think how compelling it is to talk about player experiences. It's like mm-hmm. a game of Civ, where yeah. you talk about, okay, so I was India, but... But it has more of the historical framework that's missing in the randomized gameplay in Civ. So I, I'd love for a little bit for each of us to talk about some of our gameplay experiences, uh, the specifics of what nation we played, how it went. Uh, and Rob, specifically, coming new to the series, I'd, I'd love to hear about your attempts to get into it. Uh, how did it go when you tried to play Brandenburg? Um, 
Well, it, it got off to a rough start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you start off as a small power, um, there's really not a lot for you to do. Um, I was very used to, I was expecting a sieve situation where you open up your build window and, you know, you got 20 things to choose from. Do you want to build an <laughs> opera house or a barracks? Um, and this isn't that game at all. I opened up my uh, build window and everything was grayed out, um, except for like a church, which had already been built. So um, let me ask real quick, were you starting at the very uh, beginning of the, the grand campaign or did you start when you're progressing no. further into? No, I, um, I had just actually, um, I just finished a book called Iron Kingdom. It was a, a history of Prussia. Um, and that book started around like 1625. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured this game is very historical. I'm reading this, you know, basically, um, you know, biography of Prussia. Um, so I'm just going to read about, the, you know, the Brandenburg, uh, the kingdom of Brandenburg um, as I play through this game. So I sort of had that roadmap for me. Um and so that's that's sort of, that's where I started was you know sort of um, in the middle of the action. Okay. But um, yeah, the what what I ran into right away though is that uh, history is easier than Europe Universalis three. Um, I, I I was seeing all these things that happened historically, so I was thinking, okay, I'll expand my holdings through royal marriages, and um, I'll slowly work my way out. Uh, diplomatically and gain territory that way. Um, what I discovered right away was that I was so small and insignificant that nobody cared. Um, uh, you know, the moment I tried to declare war on a neighbor, Austria would jump on me. Um, so it was, it was really frustrating. It took me a long... I was really frustrated to begin with uh, because there just didn't seem to be much to do. Um, but I adjusted to that, and I started to really enjoy how alive that world was, um, seeing all these events playing out a playing out around me and waiting for that opportunity to improve my situation just a little bit. Um, in the meantime, building this, you know, idyllic little kingdom in mm-hmm. the middle of Germany. Um, and then I started, you know, I figured it out and I started gaining territory. And, uh, one of the things I really loved about this game was, um, you can, ne- you can never really predict what's going to happen. You know, there's, there's never a moment where you think th- there were so many moments I thought I should just quit. I've lost. Uh, but, but the game is so wildly unpredictable that you will go from you know the depths of despair to euphoria uh, within five minutes. That's one of the one of the unique things about EU three, and I, I wish there were more strategy games that, that captured this. Is that you're not starting at point A and then working your way to whatever the victory condition is, and unless you're steadily climbing some curve of progress the whole time, you fall behind and you're losing the game. It's not a matter of accumulating victory points right. or being the first to launch a ship to Alpha Centauri. Or It really does capture this sense of history as surges and fading empires. and you know, it's, it's, you're, you're surfing history in a way, and you're not always going to be winning, uh, it's it's one of the few strategy games that makes it okay to fail for prolonged periods. Um, that that can be part of the gameplay. That can be part of the experience of your nation. Uh, well, I feel, no, not many games do that. No, I just wanted to real yeah. quick mention there's a mod for Civilization called is it called Rise and Fall? Yeah, it's called Rise R H Y E because the guy's right. name is Rye. Rise. Uh, and fall of civilizations, uh, and it does that same thing where it lets you jump into a particular country, and and you can sort of change skins as you're playing. You kind of molt through different historical entities, uh, 
And and very few games do that. And that's one yeah. of the things I really appreciated about EU3 that, that you brought up, Rob, that sometimes you're losing and there are these great moments where you're just on top of the world. Uh, and, and the experience includes both of those. And just to build on that, one of the great things with EU series and, you know, Heir to the Throne, which I'll talk about in more detail in a moment, is that it really teaches a lot of great strategy game virtues, including uh, patience and looking for your moment. One of the great things of playing a small state is you get to play the opportunist. You get to, if you're not conquered by Austria, Brandenburg gets to pick between empires and take advantage of somebody else's power and ride ride the wave, like Tom said, surf history, ride the wave of someone else's increase in power and status and prestige to your own dominance. And I think it's really a great game that teaches about the importance of you know, watching what's happening around you. It's a game that isn't, even though it's real time, it really privileges thinking like a turn-based player. Uh, careful attention to what's going on around you, evaluating your situation um, in a way that many great turn-based games do. It's not, it's not a, to use the horrible derogatory term, which I don't encourage people using, but I will use it because I'm tired. Uh, it's not a Twitch-based RTS. It is an <laughs> RTS that is about... It just, it's a turn-based game that happens to move in real time. And what that gives it is the luxury of not having to stylize or abstract uh, a period of time as being a turn. Yeah. Sometimes, like Rob, you were talking about, as Brandenburg, there's not a lot to do. And that's going to be the case during a lot of your time in a game of EU3, where you just have to wait. You, you bump the, the time frame up, and you just let years slide by. And, mm-hmm. and if the game were strictly turn-based, it wouldn't have that luxury. That would be a problem, and if the player has to skip through 20 turns with nothing happening, whereas now you just bump up the time acceleration, and you wait for your time, like you're saying, Troy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Heir to the Throne uh, came out just before Christmas. I had a few hours with it before I had to catch my flight home, and have over the last week have been playing games as England, turning into Great Britain, uh, a few hours as the Golden Horde to play the tribal stuff, and also as the Hanseatic League to see some of their new trade uh, systems the new Trading Republic stuff they're proud of. There is a lot of new stuff uh, in the Heir to the Throne expansion, isn't there? And I still think you're crazy, Troy, for saying that In Nominee is a better expansion. I, I just, I, I, you know, I just, it's one of these things where I could not go back to pre-Heir to the Throne EU3. I, I just don't see, that's just impossible for me. You know what, I'm beginning to agree with you, but I still think I was right. Okay. I think well, Eric, I think Nominee was a more significant expansion to the game than this is. I think I would have been happy. I'm happier with Heir to the Throne than I was without it. But I would have been perfectly happy leaving things at Nominee. I would not have been ha- perfectly happy with uh, Napoleon's ambition. We well, you know it's funny, Troy, because Paradox agrees with you in that they insist that they were done with EU3 after right. Nominee and Napoleon's ambition, and that this Heir to the Throne expansion was just something that they later decided to go ahead and work on. Yeah. And I see so many indispensable changes to the gameplay, to the systems here, that I'm surprised that if I, I just I I just can't imagine that this shouldn't have been there all along. Such as you want to elaborate on that? Okay, let's take. Uh, well, what I'd like to do is, is mention one of my play sessions as a jumping-off point to talk about uh, one of, some of the mechanics. That sounds great. Um, so, for instance, let's go with... 
uh, I think I've probably spent the most time with my game as Venice. And, and Rob, it was sort of like you talking about reading that book and jumping into Brandenburg. Uh, I'd been uh, doing some stuff with Othello, and Othello is set in uh, you, you know Venice, and it. it oh, you know, please tell has- me you're playing Iago. No, no, good lord. <laughs> uh, and and it has to do with them going to uh, is it Cyprus? I think where the yeah. Moor has yeah. to yeah. So they go to Cyprus, and the Turkish fleet is destroyed. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to be Venice, because it's roughly the same time period. I'm not sure how specific Othello is about when it takes place. but uh, So I've been jumping into Venice, uh, and I love, uh, you know, Venice is all about trade. Um, and nothing there is really that new, except for the way that it now ties into the war system. Uh, and that's another thing that is, that is unique in EU3, is that a war isn't something that you fight to seize territory and then keep it. A war is something that you do to bully someone into giving you what you want. And sometimes that's territory, but that's not always practical to do. Uh, and that's been an idea all along. But what they do in Heir to the Throne is they make they give you specific motives for going to war, which then lead to specific types of trade-offs, specific types of uh, spoils of war that you can achieve. And they vary the costs based on why you're going to war. So normally as Venice, you don't get to fight a lot. You're a little tiny slice of Italy there. You've got a lot, you've got powerful capacity for trade and for competing in foreign markets, but you don't have a lot of manpower and you don't really have a lot of reason to go to war and try to conquer territory. But one of the reasons you can go to war is if you violate the rules of a trade agreement. And Venice is all about that. Venice is all about sort of getting monopolies, and 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 you get in these trade battles with Genoa or Naples or uh, or, or those Florentine jerks. Like there's this because it's, it's it's all sliced up down in there in Italy. So as Venice now, what'll happen is I'll have great cause to go fight these little temporary wars to bring people back into my trade fold. Uh, I think they're called is it trade agreements, Troy. What is there's, the there's trade leagues? Trade leagues, yes, the leagues, exactly. Uh, so that's one of the things at, at Venice that I just, I, I love the fact that Venice now has a reason to fight, and it's not just for, and it ties into what Venice is best at. Uh, and this also plays into uh, the new system with crusades, uh, into border tensions, uh, into, you know, the religious differences. And it reminds me a bit of Solium Infernum. Mm-hmm. Where when you declare war on someone, you have to talk about exactly why you're going to war and what you want out of it. The, the mechanics of that are very particular. And so I love how that works now in, in EU3, Heir to the Throne. Yeah, the new cause of spell eye system is really an interesting little mix. of it, there, are, there are a lot of trade-offs here. I mean, there's some bad things about it, too, and we'll get into that in a bit. Uh, but I do like the fact that when you declare a war, you can have like five reasons to declare war on a specific nation, especially if it's England and France or Spain. Castile and Aragon. There are like you can, and you get to choose why you're declaring the war, but the price you pay in the peace agreement you negotiate, because the EU series is all about negotiating a peace. Unlike Civ, you can't just grab a territory and it's yours. You have to own it in the, after the negotiations are over. Right. The prices you pay depend on the reason you're declaring for the war, and I think that's some, some really interesting trade-offs there, especially for the larger powers. Um, and well, even also, go ahead. Oh, and also, Troy, it's not just the price that you pay, but also the amount of prestige you're going to get out of it. And that's a big part of the spoils of war, as well as the amount of infamy. And this is also, if I'm not mistaken, this is new in Heir to the Throne. There used to be 
this bad oh. boy factor, which was yeah. completely under the hood, but it was a huge gameplay. It was a huge part of the gameplay and how other people would treat you. And now, and I'm surprised it took them so long, it's a value right there on the top of the, the screen. It's well, constantly displayed. The, yeah. that, I mean, the value was always there, but you had to hover over your monarch's name to find mm. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, you had to hover over your monarch's name to find it. And it would was it say, called Infamy or was it called it was, Bad Boy? It was just called Bad Boy. And it would give you this number like 20 out of 33. And the number would always be there. And it would be tied. You'd see your reputation. You were hated throughout the world. You have a tarnished reputation. And it would be tied to this number that was – it was there. It was available. But, yeah, it wasn't like in your face like this big red glowing flag uh, like it is now, and like I'm surprised it took them so long to give that such a prominent spot, considering well, and also that it's so it, it, that it's so explicitly a part of of various reasons to go to war. Yeah. You know, if you go to war for nefarious purposes, then you're going to have an accelerated bad or infamy return. Yeah. Whereas if it's for honorable purposes, then infamy is not going to be a factor at all. So I love how that then figures into the various causes belli, cause belli, however well, I would say that, and whatever you also, grab, and whatever you grab in the peace tree. Right. Right. Well, Go ahead. That, that right there, I mean, it encourages proportional responses. That yes. if you go, if Scotland, like, I was playing against England, and France, you know, launched a sneak attack against me, and Scotland declared war on me as France's ally. Um, they were just living up to treaty obligations, but Scotland is right there on the same island, so I didn't even bother with France. I just marched in and started occupying large tracts of uh, Scotland, and then I forced them to accept a peace treaty where I pretty much took, you know, half of Scotland. And it was so disproportionately harsh towards Scotland that I faced a huge backlash um, in terms of infamy. Um, I hadn't started that war, but it was still a question of, you know, did Scotland's actions justify my response? And in, by the game's lights and by the international community's lights, no, it didn't. And so suddenly I became the aggressor, even though I hadn't started the fight. And I love how that that heads off these sort of gamey solutions to, uh, you know, getting territory or accumulating wealth or something. I mean, that, that's, that's a great way to avoid gaming the system. Uh, it's just, it's finessing the system, so it's now part of it. Uh, I love that. Well, one other thing I, I really enjoy about it, too, and I think this is in there, uh, I think it's in the manual for uh, Heir to the Throne. Um, it really encourages limited warfare. Um, even if you're fighting for territory, um, you fight, you know, I guess we'll bring up historical accuracy, you fight more like cabinet wars in this game, you know, where it's just small, t you know, small little wars with wounded goals um, just to extort some money or take a particular tract of land. And before I entered the throne, I remember that to take one little border province, you'd have to go nine rounds with whoever you were fighting and occupy their entire country. Yeah. And then they would see you those two little March provinces. And, you know, basically every war turned into, um, you know, every, every war turned into a clash of the titans, basically, and nobody would ever quit. Um, now everyone seems much more reasonable about knowing when to walk away from a fight. Yeah, right. Now here, so here's something that I ran into in my game is Venice. In Venice, I would get these trade leagues going and people would leave and try to form their own and I would, I would want to say, ah, 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 and I would want to go... Uh, conquer them and bring them back in. But one of the new mechanics, well, it's not new, it's been changed substantially in Heir to the Throne, is the way the Holy Roman Empire is modeled. Mm -hmm. So in the game I played, Venice is not a member of the HRE. Uh, Austria, nearby, is a member, and they are the, uh, the they're the emperor. The, they, they hold the, they're in charge of the HRE. 
So what's happened is that a lot of these these smaller countries around me that I want to get in wars with, they are members of the HRE. And I can't declare war on them without having this flood of Austrian troops falling down onto me and, and basically slapping me down. Uh, so one of the uh, – and I don't – Troy, you can probably speak more to how this mm-hmm. has changed. Um, but but the, the HRE for, for people in that part of the world, in that part of the map, seems like a huge factor. Uh, and as Venice, I don't know if it was a bug, but I couldn't get – you spend magistrates, and that's something else we can talk about – you can spend magistrates to try to get your provinces into the HRE, and then once they're accepted, you can become a member yourself. But I was having a weird problem with Venice, and it was bringing up some corrupted text that I don't know what that was about, where I couldn't get certain provinces into the HRE. And it sort of brought my progress to a halt, because I couldn't do anything militarily against other HRE members uh, without having to fight Austria, and I just didn't have that option. Um, so there, there's a lot of new stuff there, and when, when, you, be, when, when you become the emperor, there, there's a whole new set of your own reforms that you can enact. Uh, it, uh, heir to the Throne changed a lot of those mechanics as well. Yeah, I mean, the whole Roman Empire, there was always sort of an incentive. The whole Roman Emperor always had a causus belli and the right to defend any members uh, who were at war, though the empire was given a lot more juice uh, in Heir to the Throne. It's certainly a much more powerful entity uh, than it was in earlier versions. It's something I actually fear uh, is the power of the Emperor, which is up to a certain point. Uh, it's, in many ways, it's like it might have been in the heyday of you know, Charles V of uh, Spain and Austria. You know, he is the most powerful prince in Europe. You don't go around pissing him off. Um, and I felt that when Bohemia, in my English game, was the leader of the Holy Roman Empire. And a lot of the game, if you're not in the empire, is to try to find ways to make a weaker power leader of the em- leader of the empire, uh, slandering the emperor, weakening his prestige, uh, funding religious wars that exhaust him. Uh, anything that makes him a less powerful emperor is, if you're not a member, in your interest. So you get to track how prestigious the emperor is, how close he is to achieving his goals. And these are uh, this is something you can actually use. It becomes a diplomatic tool, not just for the emperor, but for people outside the empire. Something for them to pay attention to and to track. And I really like how they've made the empire not just something of interest to Germans, but something of interest to anybody in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, conversely, they, they did weird things with the papacy, too. You used to have yeah. to spend... Uh, money to bribe cardinals, which at least was interactive. I mean, it was a yep. lot of micromanagement, and I remember that could be really annoying. All of that is gone, apparently. Yes. And it's almost a die roll based on how many Catholic provinces you can Yeah, have. I'm not wild about it. I'm not actually. either. Yeah. Uh, the papacy yeah. just, at least in, in the games I've been playing, what's happening with the papacy is not a whole lot. Um, I've seen them excommunicate a few people to deadly effect, uh, mm-hmm. because if you're excommunicated, um, you know, people can declare crusades against you, and just you know, they have automatic cast spell on you. Um, but mostly what's been happening is cardinals are, you know, almost at random, dying and being replaced by cardinals from other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't really... I don't really feel the, pa- the, the uh, papacy has played any strategic role in my games. Right. Uh, it's not really... It's not something I think about when I'm trying to make long-term plans. Um, and that just <laughs> yeah. is wrong. In my game as, as Portugal... I was going along just ignoring the papacy, and then at one point I was like, oh, 
hey, look, I'm Pope. (laughs) It's like like I accidentally became in charge of the papacy, which it shouldn't work that way. I mean, that should be something that I pay attention to and should have to chase uh, and not something that uh, it comes up my turn for some random reason. It's not not entirely random. It is tied to your national decisions, uh, your leanings relative to other nations, how narrow-minded are you, how Catholic are you, all this stuff. But yeah, it is kind of... Unlike, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor, we have to do stuff uh, to become Holy Roman Emperor. We have to suck up to Bremen, uh, which nobody wants to do, to become Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, to become Pope, you know, every time a Pope dies, it's like, okay, re-die, re-roll the dice, see who's, you know, the most Catholic, and uh, therefore you're the new controller. And uh, it, I wish it was a little bit more interactive than it is, especially up to, you know, the 16th century when the Pope actually matters. Well, well, right. Go ahead, Rob. Well, I was, just, I was just going to say that, yeah, there are those things that you can do to uh, become the papal controller, um, the, you know, the, the leading member of the uh, Curia. Um, but the problem is that the, the, the papacy doesn't matter enough to make it worthwhile for me to make right. any decisions based on getting control of the Curia. Um, there are things I could do to improve my standing in Rome. I don't really care because, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the uh, Pope going to do? How, how many divisions does the Pope have? Yeah, nice. Exactly. Exactly. But it does seem like it looks like you get a tax bonus and that excommunication as a tool. I mean, it doesn't, and that's my problem, like you were saying, Troy. It just doesn't hold the candle to the HRE. And historically speaking, it should be every bit as powerful, if not more so powerful, because of how much more reach it has than, than the HRE. So they did a, a weird flip-flop, you know, coming from EU3 to heir to the throne where suddenly the HRE is this huge, significant entity that is just undeniable and that you can play with and poke at, and the papacy is something that kind of runs under the hood much more. So I'm not happy about that flip-flop. So, Troy, let's talk a bit about... You you have a a game going as England. Uh, Let's talk a bit about the new naval and colonization stuff. And, and Rob, so as... as, uh, I I think you said you were Brandenburg. You probably didn't get to play much of this. Have you you played any naval powers? Go ahead. Well, uh, I was Brandenburg with EU3 Complete. Um, with Heir to the Throne, actually, I went with England as well because that's a good mixture of uh, continental action and um, naval action. Hot continental action. Oh, yeah. My favorite kind. And uh, you guys tell me a bit about how your games have gone, respectively. Uh, I'm curious. I'll start with mine was become a continental game, and a lot of this has to do with the way the Causes Belli worked. I kept getting all these interesting Causes Belli against France, and Usually, it, traditionally in EU3, France, you can check the forums, it's called the, the BBB, the Big Blue Blob. It's just so powerful that it takes over everything. Uh, it's got riches, it's got manpower, it's got everything uh, that a nation wants, and it's pretty hard to stop. Um, the way the Causes Belli worked, both for me and for Austria and Burgundy and all these other nations, France ended up getting carved up bit by bit by bit in a rather nasty and brutal way. So all of a sudden, my traditional English game of, you know, discover India, settle South Africa, conquer the Americas, turned into a continental balance of power fight between me and Holland. Uh, So the colonial game became almost an afterthought for me. Uh, The naval game is still important for England because they have a couple of very powerful national decisions. Which, as you've said, Tom, you can look ahead and say, well, you need to do this to get this national decision. So, you know, I built up this huge navy just to get this benefit. But I wasn't exactly using the 100 big ships I had. 
because there weren't that many other navies to compete with me, but to get the benefit of these uh, national decisions, I had to build them. Uh, but the Casas Belli system pushed me, and the way the history developed, uh, it pushed England into probably the Plantagenet continental power. If the Plantagenets had stayed in power, if they owned France, uh, they were the arbiter between. I became the arbiter between Bohemia and Holland. I had to keep Austria out of Spain. You know, all these things became more important to me than you know the piddly little stuff going on with the colonists. Um, so my English game became very different from any other English game I ever played, largely due to the way that I could manipulate the Casas Belli system before I got, you know, Explore the New World, the National Decision, which gives you conquistadors and explorers. Before I got that, I found myself having to manage half of France, big chunks of the Low Countries, and some of the Pyrenees. And it's like, okay, what's important to me now? And it really wasn't the Navy at that point. So I go, end up going for Grand Army and military prestige and all of these land power stuff uh, instead of the naval stuff, which is traditionally the way it went. So it was a very different English game, largely because of the way that Heir, Heir to the Throne uh, has changed uh, national priorities based on the Causes Belli system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob, how did your England develop? Um, well, it doesn't sound like a successful way. Eh? Um, <laughs> I, I, I got. Oh, this is the one where everybody hates you because you seized Scotland. Uh, yeah, but in in my defense, they really had it coming. Uh, <laughs> the second time they declared war uh, alongside France. Damn bagpipes! Like, done. Um, <laughs> but no. Oh God! Just one other thing. I hate when you're when you're winning war against somebody, and your so-called allies sneak a province out from under you. <laughs> yes. And uh, what ended up happening to me? Is I'm sharing I'm sharing the British Isles with Portugal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they nipped they nipped a couple provinces out of Scotland, um, and then we had a falling out. So now I've got Northern Scotland and I've got England, and Portugal won't let me travel between them. Uh, so it's, it's really obnoxious. Um, oh, I love that. That's great. <laughs> but I had this really this freakish game on the continent um, where I was given the national mission to reconquer Normandy. Um, it's one of the early British missions. It happens quite frequently. Right, right. And it just it wasn't in the cards because the problem is that um, with, with England, there's a real manpower shortage, uh, especially when you're going up against France. Um, that, you know, you can kill their armies, but they just keep coming and they, they you know, take you out of numbers. But what really got me was that um, both France and Burgundy absolutely hated me. Um, they, they were like best friends for a while, just hating on the English. Um, and so when I wasn't at war with one, I was at war with the other. So I was either defending Calais or I was defending the Aquitaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and Burgundy developed this really powerful empire um, that there, there was Burgundy, uh, you know, in, in eastern France, and then they also developed one in central Europe. Um, they're split by the Holy <laughs> Roman Empire, but they were out in Lithuania um, and becoming a real threat. And here's what was really interesting. Um, they declared war on me. And I thought, you know, here, this time I'm going to lose Calais. Um, and what ended up happening was, first, all these little nations um, that were sort of sandwiched between the two halves of the Burgundian Empire began giving me war subsidies. They didn't huh. declare war on Burgundy. They started financing my war effort. I've never seen that. I have never I, been given a war neither subsidy. Neither oh, I've gotten some. I've had, gotten some. I had, like, a half dozen small German states sending me money on the slide to the point where I think I might have actually been turning a profit on the war. 
<laughs> so they were they were financing. They weren't at war with Burgundy. They were financing someone to weaken Burgundy. I don't think I've ever seen the AI know what's in its best interest as much as in this game. Because uh, these German states knew their number was up unless somebody stopped Burgundy. So they were financing more war effort. And then every other nation, um, France and uh, the Netherlands, none of us were allies, but everyone piled on all at once. It's like everyone realized that Burgundy was weak. Everyone declared war at once. And that became the game Musical Chairs, right? Where you want to be, you know, one of the first people out of the war after you take what you want. Uh, but you don't want to be the last ah, person right. fighting when everyone else sues for peace, and then, you know, they can turn all their forces against you. Uh, so what ended up happening was that in the space of just a couple years of fighting, uh, the Burgundian Empire just was demolished, um, and it became this, you know, land grab. Um, and so now I've got this weird, I've got this weird situation where I control England, not Ireland. Um, I've got Avignon as a vassal, and I'm uh, occupying... Uh, the low countries. So it was it was a really interesting game. Things can really turn on a dime uh, in EU at its best. Uh, you can see an empire collapse for a number of reasons. A stubborn peace where a nation refuses to make a peace in its best interest and then war exhaustion tears it apart. Or, you know, you do get the whole gang warfare situation where everybody sees a weak power uh, and they just beat on them. And I think a lot of that is even more exposed in the new Heir to the Throne expansion, where you can just see uh, so many different reasons for war. And this, one of my big problems uh, with the new Cause of Spell Eye system is that the stability costs really aren't there. I'm, very li- I'm hardly ever at negative stability. Really? Unless I do something <laughs> yeah. really stupid, because it's, the causes, because the, it's so easy to get a Cause of Spell Eye that doesn't yeah. cost you anything. Uh, because so that used to be a huge price of going to war, Troy. Yeah, is, is there and there, now there are so many end runs around taking that stability hit. Uh, and even then, when you do take it, I question. And this is such an artifact of the way the game was originally designed. Yeah. But I question whether or not stability really works right now as a game mechanic because uh, all it is is a temporary sink for your technological advancement. Uh, if you lose stability, it just means you're going to have to cut off your technological advancement, move that stability slider up until you get to plus three stability, and then you forget about it, and then it's it's fine. Okay, uh, I totally disagree. Okay, go go ahead. Or well, you, well, I mean, th- this might be me revealing that I actually suck at Europe Universalis. <laughs> um, haven't figured out how to game stability, but what was happening with me is that I was constantly having stability problems um, because yeah, through random events or war declarations. Um, well, through war and through nationalism, uh, because it takes a long time for a, for a nation to really become homogenized. So the longer we were at war, and I was at war almost constantly because people kept attacking me, uh, the longer we were at war, um, suddenly Welsh nationalism awakened from its slumber, and the Welsh are rebelling. Uh, the Aquitanians are rebelling against me. Um, but that sounds, like an, artifact, that sounds like, an, yeah, that sounds like an artifact of revolt and war exhaustion, not the stability score. Yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, at the very top, and it, it used to be a, a crucial game, it used to be sort of a central game concept, stability can range between negative three and positive three, uh, and I think as it lowers, that can affect your revolt chances in provinces. It does, yeah. But, but what you, what you basically want to do whenever you're playing, anytime your stability goes below positive three, because it affects everything, taxation, all that stuff, 
uh, you invest in stability on the slider bar until it climbs back up to positive three. And then the slider bar automatically shuts down and, and the values go back to what they were before. Um, but it's, it's just a temporary money sink uh, anytime you, you take a hit. And now there are fewer occasions to take hits so much so that it's something that I rarely pay attention to anymore. And that affects uh, the AI as well. So you have very few AI nations going below negative you know, stability. Exactly. And that means that there's you do get a lot more blob nations. You get Well and I used to try look on the ledger to see, okay, who what's what's everybody's stability? And I yeah. will routinely check that as sort of a gauge. It used to be a gauge for who was having problems for whatever yes. reason, uh, who was weakened, who was vulnerable. And I don't think that's the case anymore because it's so easy to avoid taking that stability hit. Uh, I almost wish, and I hate to sit here in armchair design because I, I, God knows I'm, I'm a far worse designer than anybody who's actually making games, but, but I almost wish that stability was somehow a constant money sink rather than something that you just paid to get it up to positive three. Mm. Uh, that the value might be something that you had to constantly in, invest a certain amount of money to keep from it dropping. Sort of like the missionary and colonial slider, where if, if you want to have this continue and progress, you have to have an investment in it? I think so. Like, like something like that. Because as it is now, it's like I said, it's, you, you, just, yep. you just stop researching other technology until your stability is positive three, and then you just go back to the, the previous value. Uh, and one of the big things in uh, EU3 when it came out was that you know you would often have to deal with plus one stability or plus two stability, and that would be a way of life. If you want to make progress, you have to accept the fact yeah, you weren't yeah. going to be at perfect stability all the time, which was an issue in uh, EU2, that really stability was kind of negligible except for the historical events, which, you know, you have a bad king. Your stability sucks. Congrats. Right, right. Uh, but then, uh, for some now an heir to the throne is England. Here I am declaring I'm taking huge swaths of the continent. I'm conquering India with for no reason whatsoever, except oh, I, I have this holy war declaration. Well, I can press that because uh, they're Hindu, and it's before right, right. the Treaty of Utrecht. Bang, um, and that doesn't hurt me at all. After a now, certain Ron point, you don't get those. Uh, some of those declarations don't work anymore. You don't get the holy war after a certain date. But for a long time, it's really easy to grab huge swaths of land with really no cost besides your infamy, uh, which is a big deal, but the stability hit just isn't there anymore. Yeah. And now, Rob, you're absolutely right, though, about the revolt stuff. Like, I love how huge a factor that is. Yes. And, and this was – Troy, did this change in in nomine or Napoleon's ambition, where they have different kinds of revolts and different kinds of rebels? That was in nomine. Okay, and I love that. Yeah. Like, I love how there's a different flavor to different kinds of unrest. Uh, it's usually important to based on what's happening in your kingdom. But also, it's usually important based on what you can do with your spies. Because you can sponsor, like, patriot revolts. Oh, right, And right, then right. they will revolt and join you if they grab the territory and hold it long enough. Uh, now, espionage which, isn't something I wish espionage. Espionage is so hard to do in a strategy game at this scale, is. though, I think. It really uh, is. So, so I don't want to ding them too hard on that. At least they didn't do something wretched like like in Civ Four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's something. It's a technique I've grown to appreciate more. Uh, how how you can foment revolts uh, for specific reasons and yeah. sort of. But my problem, and this is I think always the problem I have with espionage systems, is that it again it's sort of like the papacy, right? It never makes enough of a difference to really be worth my time and interest. Right. And all that money it takes too. I mean, it can be a huge oh, it, it money. It is expensive. Thing. You're just you're, you're going to fail a lot. 
you're going to fail. You're just paying a, a big chunk of gold to, for a die roll, and I, I just am not comfortable with, with that mechanic. I don't really right. like. And it. then you pay a fortune, and your big rebellion is six thousand guys taking right. on like forty thousand men. <laughs> that's that's not that's not terribly helpful. You know, we're not going to overthrow France. You know, with six thousand dudes. Hey, and the, it's the, like the, every the Scarlet Pimpernel almost did it. <laughs> he did. That guy was tough, Richard Grant. <laughs> And every time you fail, too, you're taking the prestige hit. So it's yeah. not enough that you've spent the gold uh, or the relationship hit with the other country. Yeah. One, one thing I want to go back to the stability, because I, I might not be clear on how this works. When my stability dropped to, like, negative two, negative three, okay. I had revolt risk skyrocket across my kingdom. Yeah, what on uh, earth did you get? What on earth did you do to get your stability so low? Because that's that's what we're talking about. How do you? I mean, the stability. It's hard to get stability that low unless you're unless you're something ridiculous like change your religion. I had no. I had. I was. I was stricken by a series of dynastic disasters. Oh, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> I had a line. A line damn near de- died off. Uh, the king just slipped a kid there under the wire. Uh, so he was like he was like one year old when his dad died. When my king died, and um, a regency council ruled England for like fifteen years, um, and so that was that was just a disaster. Uh, very low legitimacy. Plus, the claim was really weak. Uh, so when he took over, oh, helpfully, he was also an idiot. Um, so it was a, it was a terrible king. It was after fifteen years of like regency rule, a uh, terrible king. Nobody respected them, and I was constantly trying to fend off. Uh, Burgundy and France. So I mean, it was just a series of things that conspired to prevent me from ever getting my feet under me. Um, Let me so ask was, Rob: were, were you then trying to play? Like, whenever I see my stability drop like that, I stop everything, max out the stability slider, and wait and ride it out. Were, were you not doing that and just sort of like trying to incorporate a little bit of stability spending along with playing normally? I was until I just okay. started doing direct cash cash injections to, to stability because uh, I was England and I was rich, um, and you had all those war subsidies to spend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, eventually. But um, the, the problem the problem was also that I didn't feel like I could really take my foot off the throttle on my other research areas because I didn't have the numbers on my enemies. So I really needed. I really felt like I needed to making rapid technological progress. Uh, because if I didn't stay ahead of them, or at least stay current with them, I was going to get rolled in the next war. So I was really, really stubborn about ever throttling back um, in favor of stability. Now here, uh, uh, here, here's another one of the things that I kind of, where I wish stability was, was done a little differently. If you let off the throttle on that research... I don't feel like it's as big an impact as a game like Civ, where no. research is much more dramatic, discrete steps. Yep. Here, it's such a gradual continuum. You know, if you're behind in land warfare, maybe two factors or whatever, it's, it's you know, a 5% morale change. I, I don't feel the impact of it that much. And furthermore, they kind of hard code your research progress by throwing in bonuses or penalties based on what other countries around you have accomplished. Um, so there's, there's yeah. a bit of rubber banding rubber going on. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that makes it feel less urgent for me. I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm fine letting off on research until I build my stability back up. Right. Uh, but, well, I mean, the, the thing is, when, but it is so dramatic when a new technology is deployed that if you've fallen behind enough that you're a couple jumps away from getting the next level of technology and you see those advanced troops hit the field, you know, you're, you are screwed for a generation. 
So now, do you mean okay? So right, like the new the new types of units that come in, like you, you're sort of talking about those gaps. Yeah, and those and sometimes you can get hit, hit one gap and there's all of a sudden a plus point two five morale bonus, and that can make a huge difference. Or uh, when can, somebody gets their new national decision or whatever, and, and suddenly gets a plus fifty percent manpower increase. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I guess so. There are definitely discrete points in there. Uh, but uh, yeah, but it certainly is less discreet than Civ, and I, I think the rubber banding is you know it's, it's their nod to history, and you see some of that even in Civ uh, to some extent, where you know there are different costs uh, for researching different technologies depending on who else has them and ah, right, trading right. thing. So that's even in a game like Civ, uh, it's there because acknowledging you know information wants to be free uh, and it's going to spread, <laughs> uh, and I actually. Actually, count on the rubber banding to some extent. It allows me to do things like France is going to have a huge lead on uh, land warfare because that's what France is good at. Uh, France will invest in that. You can trust it. So you want to get a border with France. You want France to be your neighbor, but not your enemy. Right. Um, so there are ways you can work with that. Uh, I want to talk a bit about magistrates before we uh, conclude this because I think the magistrate and the cultural tradition thing is something that I'm not quite sure works the way they intended it to. And it's, I have to see how it's changed with the new patch, because uh, the patch has changed some things here. But, um, so, the, the cultural tradition, as I understand it, the intention is to give you a reason to be at peace. Because when you're at peace, you accumulate cultural tradition, and this gives you something to invest in your provinces, to make them uh, richer, to make these provincial decisions, which have been there since... Uh, uh, in nominee to give them some heft, to give them some value, um, and I'm not quite sure they work. I'm not all that interested in them. They seem like they're just easy bonuses. Okay, well, I'd, I'd love to hear more. I, I disagree because I love yeah. the magistrate system, and I love mm-hmm. how it, it it adds in a little bit of what's missing with the tech, with these yeah. discrete decisions that make a huge difference. Every magistrate you spend can make a big difference, and it's very discreet. And as soon as right. that little guy pops up there, I want to spend him. And yeah. it is so tough to, for instance, save up five of them for something like a, I don't know, a cathedral or whatever. Like there, there are these yep. huge magistrate costs, and 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 maybe it's just that I've been playing Portugal and Venice, so they don't have, uh, they they don't get magistrates as quickly, perhaps, yeah. as someone like Britain. Well, the, the, um, but I love the magistrate system, and I love how it adds this discrete element to these provincial decisions, right. to the national focus. See, I love the trade-off where you have to spend, uh, you can spend magistrates to add up, to, to sort of accumulate extra cultural tradition, right. um, and then have the cultural tradition then builds into building your own cabinet of advisors, which is new in Heir to the Throne as right. well. So I, I love the magistrate system. I love the intent of the magistrate system. Here's the issue I'm having is that the patch has changed some of this. It's changed some of the values of accumulating magistrates. It's been nerfed some because I, after around 1500, I never had a lack of magistrates. I was getting, you know, two magistrates a year easy. So I never had to run out of them. I was just spending them like candy. I was expanding roads into my colonies that had like 500 people in them. Seneca wants a road? Here, have a magistrate. Seneca can have a road. Um, I had no trouble accumulating cultural tradition for that reason, which meant I could always have a level four to six uh, advisors in my cabinet. I never had to make do with the crappy cabinets. But they die. You have to replace them. I mean, it's, a, it's constantly a sink. Right. That's one of the things but that I like about it. You have to die, but I'll have five magistrates, and 
90 or 80 cultural tradition by the time they die. Okay. And I think that now they've changed the values. They've uh, it used to be if you built the post office, you got plus point zero five magistrates per year per post office, mm-hmm. and they've reduced that to plus point zero one magistrates. Are the post offices permanent? Or are they those that's temporary hard. things? They're, they're permanent. Okay, and that's that's a huge bonus. Um, and can you now, only build them around your national focus? Because there are a few provincial improvements I found out the hard way that you don't get unless it's your national focus or bordering yeah. national uh, You can build post offices pretty much, and there are some requirements, but pretty much uh, they aren't that limited. I was building post offices far away from my national focuses. I think it has to do with population and tax rate or something. Um, but I, wasn't, I was not running out of magistrates, and I mm-hmm. understand that was one of the big things behind it, and I think I haven't played a lot with the recent beta patch, and hopefully that will make them more significant. But cultural tradition just made it, it's just, it, it, unlike military tradition and naval tradition, which you really have to work at. I mean, you have to be at war to get military tradition. Naval tradition, you have to explore sea zones or be at naval combat. It actually is effort to accumulate that. Cultural tradition, you know, maybe it's all these professors sitting around doing nothing. Uh, and there's your cultural tradition, because there doesn't need to be a whole lot of work involved in it. And I think that's a, could use a little bit more balancing, making you invest in cultural tradition in a different way. Well, I don't know. I, I really liked the magistrates, but my problem was the cultural tradition. Because um, it, it again seemed like another of those systems that, yeah, sort of looked after itself. Um, there were times I wished I had more magistrates on hand, but I also I didn't feel that cultural tradition was something that I really ever had to work at. Um, I was doing just fine getting the steady drip feed of magistrates that I was getting. I didn't feel like there was going to be much point in working really hard at creating this cultural powerhouse. I think what it is that the magistrates is that it, it, those used to be things that were money sinks, if I'm not mistaken. So it decouples that from your gold income and basically gates it. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it has a whole different, it's a whole separate resource system that you gradually get. Uh, and I just like that it's no longer a, a money sink like espionage, for instance. Right. Uh, some of them still require gold, some of the decisions. Uh, right, right. It's mainly you're limited by yeah. your your magistrate yeah. income. Uh, that that's sort of the that's what gates right. how often you can do those things. Well, like your missionaries, it made the entire provincial decisions, uh, you know, window a lot more interesting to me. Yes, because before it was just there were there the, these huge swaths of decisions would open up to you, and if you had any kind of money in the bank, um, it was a no brainer, right. right? Of course, I'm going to build that upgrade. Why wouldn't I build that upgrade there? Uh, but here it becomes. You have to pick and choose who's going to get this upgrade first. Uh, right. Where's this magistrate yeah. going to go? Yeah. And so I do think it it makes it just it makes the development of your empire and your infrastructure just a lot more interesting than it was. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great early game system. I don't think it works for the late game, later mid game. I think the income of magistrates is just too steady uh, for it to be truly interesting after a certain point. But uh, I do like what they're intending with it. I still think it's a little bit more tweaking, and I've got to see uh, how the patch fixes it. Uh, now, b- before we conclude, a couple yep. something I want to talk about that we yep. didn't get to touch on much is, as Portugal playing a colonization-heavy game, uh, I love some of the stuff they've done with, with, with navies, with uh, Such supply as? ranges and automatic patrols. Uh, you know, you just have to, you have to spread your navy out and park it in different places to prevent piracy, uh, and this gives a better sense of needing 
to have naval power projected <clears throat> excuse me projected overseas when you're colonizing places i really like that i like how it's clear when you have a tooltip for a sea um you know how well it's patrolled uh and your supply range uh I like how, and Troy, I don't know if this is new, your overseas income, your, your income from an overseas province is directly related to the size of your navy. That was also in your nominee. Okay. Uh, so I love that abstraction. I think you uh, love your nominee more than you think you do. Well, no, no, I just, uh, I, well, for instance, so here's the new thing that was not in, in nominee, yep. and this was always a problem that I had. Yep. Colonization, so playing Portugal, I made a beeline to, to be the first one to, uh, you know, get that quest for the New World decision so I could get out there and grab parts of Africa and, and you know, get out there into Brazil. Uh, one of the things they do is that, it, actually, maybe this is from Innomine, when you find a new territory, there's a question mark where the uh, trade good that's going to be produced would normally be indicated. Mm-hmm. Once you colonize it, it takes a while, but eventually that trade good is revealed and it's somewhat randomized. Yeah. That, now, is that in, that's new? I think that was Napoleon. I think that was Napoleon's ambition. Oh, maybe that's the expansion I love most because <laughs> I love that sense. Yeah. As Portugal, I don't always know. You know, here there's going to be slaves. Here there's going to be gold. Here there's going to be wheat. Um, and I haven't played nearly enough to have that memorized, but I yeah. like the idea of it being randomized. Yeah, there, there, I, there's a, a rough historical parallel, but it's not perfect, uh, which is great. Right. Right. And I, I further like, and and again, you can tell me if this is new. Which expansion added this? They they're making an effort to do to give you specific bonuses based on building manufactories on specific trade goods. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you build one on a province that produces wheat, it's you have the provincial decision to I think you can do something to build like a grain depot that gives you plus twenty five percent manpower limit. Uh, It requires developing that province with wheat. Uh, I don't know what expansion added that, but I'm almost certain that was not originally in U3. Yeah, no, a lot of the provincial decisions, the Grain Depot one, and there's one for uh, building a naval manufacturer, you get right. to have, those are, those are uh, to uh, heir to the throne. There were always, there were always some bonuses to building uh, manufacturers in specific we know resource it is, yeah, areas, it's, it's but that was tied to... I'm sorry, it's separate from manufacturers. It's a provincial decision. Yeah, yeah. But it's, but and it's magistrates, by the way. There you go. Another another checkbox in the pros for magistrates. Yes. I think it requires a bunch of those little dudes. Yeah. Uh, spheres of influence are also new, which I, I'm not sure mm-hmm. I understand them, but they're a way to spend prestige to basically call well, They're kind of cool. Yeah. It, it's just another way to get another causes belly, I'm finding. Yeah, well. It's another go. cheap, easy causes belly. You just it's say, good. you know, N- N- Navarre belongs to me. Don't you mess with Navarre. Then someone messes with Navarre, and you get another cheap, easy uh, cause of spell eye. So it further marginalizes stability. Yeah. <laughs> All that said, we can say we like Heir to the Throne. Uh, yeah. Very much so. Love it. Yep. yep exactly. Oh, another new thing, the slider consequences. That when you, when you tip a slider one notch, it used to be, you know, the bonuses would happen automatically. Yep. But now you've got, you do a die roll to see what's going to happen. I love that. Wait, yeah. that happened in, didn't that happen in... In nominate, yes. Yep. That's yeah, another in, in, the ma- in, the ma- yeah. in the manual, it was weird. They singled it out as a new feature, but I don't think it is. Uh, some of them are new, but uh, Wait, no, in nominate. That didn't happen in, in nominate. I'm yes, gonna, it did. I'm gonna, no, yes, it's it in did. the manual as being in Heir to the Throne. They can't lie in the manual. It I was is. EU3 complete like two weeks ago, and I'm playing this now, and it's in yep. both versions. So. Oh, yep. those jerks. All right. It so was I in the nominate. <laughs> you do love it. Nominate was a, was a great expansion, and my favorite, it was my favorite expansion of all strategy games in 2000. Eight uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, so 
EU3 uh, best strategy game of the decade or ever? <laughs> Nowhere near. It's awesome, <laughs> but you know what? I just I get the sense with Air, uh, so much of what makes Air to the Throne great is is feature creep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as feature, it's the best feature creep ever. I'll give it that. Uh, that is really an issue with Heir to the Throne, and something I'm still concerned about is, you know, people complain about how you're opening yourselves to people, actually people boast, uh, EU Paradox fans, about how you have to be really smart to play the EU games. And I said, well, no, you just have to, you know, pay attention. You don't feel all that intelligent to figure it out. If you think this will have an effect in the real world, it'll probably have to affect in EU3. Uh, but it's gotten really hard to track everything that's going on, and in spite of their wealth of new tooltips. Well, you get into a groove, and Rob, you could yeah. probably speak to this more because you're kind of more new to it. But I, I, I yes. you know, I'm, a lot of it comes back to me as I sit down to play Heir to the Throne. Um, but there's a definite, you, you climb that learning curve, and then there's this zen-like groove where you're just accelerating time, and you know when something's going to happen. You want to stop and slow yep. and, and put your fingers down in there and muck with things, and you accelerate time. And, you know, this is a game almost like Dawn of Discovery where I find myself yeah. playing for, you know, five, six hours at a time. And there are very few games that can hold my attention span that long. Uh, so, so Rob, being new, is that the case for you? Does it, uh, was it, was it, what was it like dealing with the learning curve? Well, I think one of the things important is the way I play games. Um, I'm not a great re- manual reader. I, I'm actually terrible at really understanding the systems that make my games work. Um, so my relationship with EU3 is I'm quite happy to play on this really superficial level. Um, but I don't always feel compelled to understand everything that's affecting my decisions or the consequences of my actions. Um, what ended up happening with me is, at first I was baffled. The tooltips held my hand enough that I could begin to suss things out. And then I was able to sort of run along the surface of this game. Um, you know, knowing there was all this stuff happening, you know, inside the game, uh, but not really caring, just, you know... In playing it by instinct, basically. And then as I play it more, more of these things become apparent. The cause and effect of the game becomes clear. So I, I think I, I think that groove is very important because it doesn't take that long to know enough to fiddle around with it somewhat competently. And then it holds your interest long enough to sort of explain itself as it plays out. That's been yeah. my experience. One of the great things that I like about the EU games is, uh, and I've mentioned this in a couple of places, is that... Th- it's a kind of game where you don't have to know everything right away. You only have to be able to master one system at a time. An event, you don't need to know, colon- if you start in the early stage, you don't need to know colonization or even that much about trading uh, until you've mastered other stuff, like what does the stability factor mean? What does it cost a spell eye? What is my manpower? All this other stuff. And then you're introduced to them bit by bit. And some of them you never need to learn at all. Uh, if you want, just want to play a, you know, a straight colonization, you, you can avoid colonization if you want by just playing turkey all the time. Um, and just pretending that system isn't even there. It's very customizable into the experience you want to have, uh, and you can introduce yourself bit by bit to it. And I think it's not really as user-unfriendly as many people fear, but yeah, you do have to get into a groove, and you do have to accept there are going to be some false starts, and be willing to accept failure uh, quite a bit. And I'm really a, a huge fan of Paradox Studios, in spite of you know the number of missteps uh, they've made in my way along the way. Victoria 2, come on guys, no one asked for that. Um, so I'm actually, uh, 
Yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan. I like, I'm loving most of Heir to the Throne, though I do think stability needs to be either more important or, like you say, Tom, a better, better money sink or something. And that variety of experiences is also, even as far as jumping into it, mm-hmm. it's a lot of what keeps guys like us who know the game well coming back. Yes. You know, my listening to you guys talk about Britain, I'm like, oh, those guys don't know what they're doing. I'm going to play Britain now. I'm going to see how my Britain fares. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to play, play Venice. And, and Troy, you didn't you didn't get to talk much about your uh, you were playing. Did you say China? Uh, no, the the Golden Horde. I still oh, don't. Oh, yeah, yeah. I still don't have a feeling for the way try. I've never played a game with a tribe all the way to the end because uh, they're very frustrating tribes. Well, and I I really want to try, for instance, some Mesoamerican culture and see what happens when the Spanish arrive. And you know, that's a whole different kind of yeah, experience. Boring. As well. uh, is it really? Yeah, because you're sitting around waiting for the Spanish to show up. And you lose. <laughs> yeah, you can, ha- you, can, you can have your uh, military research slider all the way to the end for the whole game until the Spanish show up, and you still won't have reached te- level technology of one. Ouch. <laughs> so I was I played a game as uh, the Zapotec. I tried as the Zapotec uh, yesterday. It's like, you will discover research military level one in the year 4000. Well, my Mayan neighbors awesome. tell me the world will be dead by 2000. Well, wait, can't you, can't so. you, like, unite... South America and, and stand up against Spain. There's no, uh, that's not an option. Well, I have to get conquistadors to do that, and that requires a certain level of uh, trade technology, right? Because I can't just explore South America. Hmm, huh. that sucks. Because uh, that's like that's like an avatar where they unite all the clans and then they fight, and that's what that makes me want to play as, as a Mesoamerican civilization. There's some. Rats. There's you, well, you can you know I suppose you can punch forward you know start in 1492 and wait for Cortez to come. Hmm. Okay. But, no, but anyway, I, I think there's there's just a conceptual problem playing as the tribes, and that is like European Salus is basically a game that revolves around the state. Yeah. Um, you know, the the sovereign entity that's in control of foreign policy, a modern Western state. Um, and playing as the tribes, yeah, they exist in that world, but the game system isn't designed to make that interesting. Um, or even playable. It's not. It's not designed for you to play from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, the Golden Horror, You're just facing rebellions constantly uh, because in a tribal system, there's always a succession crisis. Right. Every king has a succession crisis. It's unavoidable. It's written into the game, which means you have all these revolts taking over these provinces that don't even have forts because you're living on horseback uh, on the Russian steppes. You don't need forts, which means you lose half your provinces, and then Lithuania declares war on you, and everything goes to hell. But it's fun. Mm-hmm. But Thanks for I, sapping my enthusiasm to play Mesoamerica. Nicely, nicely done, guys. I hope you're happy. You might like it, you know, because you, you you liked Avatar, right? <laughs> my favorite movie. <laughs> Watch, we're gonna be on the show like a couple weeks, and Tom's gonna be like, "Yeah, so I conquered Europe as the as the Aztecs." <laughs> if he if he does that, he's banned. Well, the funny thing is, I did notice, you know, at the uh, being a huge fan of manuals. By the way, I love the manuals for for this game. You know, I've got a here. Listen to this. That's a big stack of, stack of papers I printed out of all the manuals. Uh, so I, there's there's an appendix in the back where they clearly they, they confess. Okay, look, if you're playing one of the tribes, you get like a 200 percent penalty to tech research. <laughs> you know, there's there's a table there yeah. that clearly spells out what challenges you're going to be facing based on what culture you're playing. Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, I, kn- I knew what I was in for, but I, I still wanted to try it. And now you guys have just ruined my enthusiasm for it. So thank you. I say try it anyway. No, fine. I'm just. I'm going to keep playing Venice and Portugal, and I'm going to try Britain. And then there's the whole Byzantium challenge. Oh yeah. Not to, not to raise a new topic, but do you guys think the trade leagues 
really worked throughout the course of the game. Because what I was seeing happening was that they were very important early on, mm-hmm. but eventually it was just a collective action problem. They would all sort of disintegrate, and it stopped making sense to be a member of a trade league. And they were rarely powerful enough to sort of hold it together by force of arms. So I was wondering, do, do you guys think the trade leagues really changed that much? Are they that interesting? Well, I think they're a way to circumvent the fact that some uh, nations have sucky trade efficiency and their merchants can't compete. They're a way to sort of grab a slice of the pie. And they do rise and fall. I mean, they're almost yep. like empires in that way. Uh, but I can see the value of them. Um, trade is a really weird system. And, and, you know, here's one of the other things about the variety of gameplay experiences. Mm-hmm. I love that depending on what nation you're playing and when you're playing it, you will have you will rely to different degrees on one of three things for your money, taxes, production, or trade. Or war. Uh, or, or, or war. Do you get a lot of money from war? I, I do. Generally, if I... I oh, like I, settlements and whatnot? Or, no, I mean... Are you an extortionist, Troy? I, I am. I've, I always conquer the Incas and steppes. Bit by oh, bit. Oh, that's another oh, thing. Like, I just bleed, I bleed them of every right. cent they've got. Well, I think that's something they changed too. Is that you couldn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily profitable to just beat up on on uh, on New World uh, tribes and whatnot. Oh, it's always uh, profitable to beat up on the Inca. But I think like as much. I think that's yeah. something else right. that they changed in Heir to the Throne. And I, as Portugal, I'm making some money from it, but I'm not getting rich or anything. But but so that's one of the things that uh, you know it's. Trade can matter to different degrees, and therefore trade leagues can matter to different degrees at different times yeah. based on what nationality you're playing. And so I love watching production sort of ramp up as you get closer to the industrial era, and, and you know taxes can make a difference, and then that war tax button, which I always forget to press until I'm two years into a war, and I'm like, oh, perhaps. Yeah. So uh, I, I understand your reservations, but I think it's, it's, it's like so many things in EU3, Rob, it's, it's based on context. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, the historical ebb and flow of trade leagues. You know, as, event, as your technology gets better and production becomes more important, the trade league becomes less essential to many nations. So I think in many ways the trade leagues are a way to give these powerful financial centers of the early 15th century their historical heft at the time, uh, but you can't survive into the 18th century as a, as a trade league. you got to find something to compensate for it, uh, which is great, and I really love the way they've done that. Uh, so next week, oh, first predictions for Victoria Two. Any guys? <laughs> I didn't play Victoria One, Wait. so oh, I'm looking forward to it. All right. well, I, I didn't play Victoria One, but I'm actually kind of interested in the whole idea. Um, it's, a, it's a period in history that interests me, and um, I don't know if they can make a strategy game that takes like the Pax Britannica and makes that interesting to play. Um, I will be really excited to play that game. Well, they almost did with Victoria One. Almost came pretty close. Uh, so that should be out later this year, and of course we'll probably devote a show to that uh, when it comes out. Uh, next week we have no topic chosen, uh, but stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed our show. Rob, thank you for filling in again. We really appreciate it when you come on. Thanks for having me back. Tom, as always. Cheers. If anyone needs a coffee, let me know. <laughs> Good night, all. <laughs>